so would you say that you are an optimist or a pessimist? If you were to say, how do I look at the world? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? To use a familiar analogy, would you say you see the world through rose-colored glasses? That you think the world's a pretty good place and the things that aren't so good, they're going to get better. Or would you say that you see the world through darker lenses? That the world's not so good of a place and things are probably not going to get much better. They recently did a study by the American Council of Health and Sciences that said 6%, 6% of Americans, all things considered, thought the world was going to get better. That's pretty sad, isn't it? The reality is there is lots of bad news in our world. And, there, and what I found and what we see in this text is that what we see in life changes how we see life itself. That our experiences in life change how we experience the present moment and how we project how life is going to go for us. What we see literally changes how we see the world. And in this sermon, we're going to look at the women that had the closest picture of this resurrection account. Mary, Mary, and Salome. The three eyewitnesses to that Easter morning. And we're going to look first at what they saw before Easter morning, those few days leading up to Easter. And then we're going to look at what they saw that Easter morning and how it changed how they saw. And then we're going to ask the question that if you're here, you should be asking, which is this. Does this event that they witnessed 2,000 years ago have any effect on the way we see the world? Especially the way we see the hard things that each of us are facing in our lives. So if you have your Bible, let's open them up to Mark 16. We're going to be planting in Mark 15 and 16 for the majority of this sermon. It's on page 853 in, in your Bibles. So we see in chapter 16 that Mary, Mary, and Salome are heading to the tomb. But what I want to look at is what they saw before them. So we're going to back it up a few verses to Mark 15 and verse 41. Because this gives us a little bit of the backstory of what they'd seen up until this point. It says in verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they, being Mary, Mary, and Salome, had followed Jesus, and they were among the women who had gone up with him into Jerusalem. So they were with him in Galilee and in Jerusalem. So what did they see in Galilee? Well, they saw his healings. What they saw was that maybe the sin, the disease that we live with, the death that we experience so often in our life, maybe there's hope for physical brokenness because they saw Jesus healing people. And then they saw his teaching, that we experience the relational brokenness every single day, brokenness in our relationship with God, like that passage said, this veil we feel like in front of us that we can't fully see God. And then the broken relationships that we have with our friends, with our families, with the people we work with. But then they saw Jesus teaching in Galilee about love and about forgiveness and how we can have a restored relationship with God and others. And so they began to have this hope, this hope for relational brokenness. And then 
we see as they go up into Jerusalem, this hope is stirred up to a fever pitch. Because Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. Everyone is laying down their palm branches and saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one who is to come. And what that meant for them was that this Messiah has come to set Israel free from Roman oppression. That maybe all the injustices of this world will now be set to right. And so hope even for societal brokenness. And so as they go into Jerusalem, these women go in with unbridled hope. But then in chapter 15, everything falls apart. It says that Jesus is arrested. And then he's put on trial. And then he's led out of the walls of Jerusalem with a cross on his back. And he climbs up a hill called Golgotha. And there he's nailed to that cross. And so the hope of Galilee quickly turns into the despair of Golgotha. And it says this. In verse 37 of chapter 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then in verse 40 it says, And there were women looking on from a distance. Mary, Mary, and Salome. They saw Jesus breathe in and then slump dead on the cross. And not only that, but they saw as a man named Joseph bought a linen shroud, took Jesus down from the cross, and laid him into a tomb. It says in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So they saw his final breath and they saw his final resting place. See, what they saw changed how they saw. They had hope and then the door of hope slammed shut even more quickly than it came. And the reality is I think that that is the story of many of us. Most of us, I think, are born with an inherent optimism. We have a 10-month-old and he, every morning when we go to wake him up, we flick on the lights and he kind of opens his eyes and then gets up on the side of the bed, holds onto the side of the crib and he starts dancing like this. And he's like, yeah, come on, I'm ready for my bottle. I'm ready for this day. And he's just ready. And I think the reality is the majority of us, when we were young, we had this idea of we can make a difference. When we started our jobs, we said, I can make my field a better place. I can work myself up the ranks and do things the right way. When we get married, we think, I'm going to have a great marriage. We're going to fight to stay in love and stay close. When we start a family, we think, I'm going to love my kids so well. And I'm going to create a better home for them than even the ones that I grew up in. And we have these seasons in our relationship with God where we think, God really does love me. He really does have a plan for my life. And then what we see begins to change how we see whether it be little experience after little experience or a cataclysmic Golgotha-like experience, all of a sudden, life has a way of jading us. And we find ourselves saying the kinds of things like, things are not going to change. What's wrong in this world is never going to be set to right. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't have a plan for me. I don't even know if he exists. See, life has a way of stealing our hope. 
few days ago, my wife and I were going for a walk in uh, Green Cove Springs at the Spring Park. And we were walking through, and there was something that we hadn't seen there before. There's all these kids and families and things like that, but then there was this guy that was sleeping on the ground. He was obviously homeless. And the first thing that popped into my mind was, is that legal? Is he allowed to sleep there? There's all these families and things here. That was the first thing that popped into my mind. But all throughout college, I did homeless ministry. And you see, life has this way of stealing our hope, of shrinking our vision down for what God can do in the world. What for you is an area that you've lost hope? That you've lost hope that God can actually change things? Now, many of us fight hard to stay optimistic. We think, you know, hey, yeah, things are messed up. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. We try to tell ourselves that. There is a contemporary artist by the name of Damien Hirst. He's probably one of, if not the, the leading contemporary artist in the world right now. And he came out with a piece of art called For the Love of God. This is it. And what it is is a platinum skull encased in hundreds of perfect diamonds. You can go back to that one. Hundreds of perfect diamonds. Does anybody want to guess how much this piece of art sold for? What? What? 40 million. 98 million, actually. 98 million dollars is how much this piece of art sold for. And they asked the artist, why? Why did you make this very arresting piece of art? And he said this, I wanted to give people a feeling of life over death. I wanted this piece to proclaim victory over decay. And so is this the best that we can do as humans? Is just conjure up a feeling of maybe there's life over death? Is there any real, tangible evidence that there is actual life over death? That there is actual hope for the brokenness that we encounter on a day-to-day basis? See, that's the mentality that Mary, Mary, and Solomon had as they went to the tomb. They had anointing spices in their hands. And they were going with the full expectation that they were going to do one act of love for their dead friend. And it wasn't really going to change the situation. It was a beautiful act of love, but it was as futile as putting diamonds on a skull to anoint a dead body. It was a beautiful act, but ultimately a futile act. And so they're on their way to the tomb. And they're saying to one another, asking a practical question, who's going to roll away the stone? And then what they saw was something like this. They saw that the tomb had been rolled away. And so they began to see things differently. Okay, what's going on here? And it says in verse 4 that they looked up, And in entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side and their vision began to change. Things were not what they expected. And that man dressed in a white robe said this, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. People of God, 
He has risen. He has risen. Those three words rewrite all of human history. Those three words have the power to restore our vision. The empty tomb, what they saw that morning when they walked in and the man said, look, he's not here. See where his body laid. And that final resting place was not his final resting place. He was risen. That should change our vision, restore our vision for the world. One of my favorite theologians is a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. And he's written over 700 page book on the resurrection. And towards the very end of the book, he says this. This is his conclusion. He says, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. He has risen. Those three words have the power to restore our vision. They give us a powerful hope through which to see the world. Now Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.23 says this, that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. The first fruits. Now what does he mean by that? Paul is painting a picture of us of a tree, a barren tree in the winter. Now we don't know much about that here in Florida um, because our trees always stay green. Um, but a few trees do lose all of their leaves. And looking at them, you would not know whether this tree is dead or alive in the wintertime. And then you notice at the very beginning of spring, a little shoot comes out of one of the branches. And then that shoot turns into a flower or into a fruit. And you know what that means. That that tree is about to explode with flowers and fruit. And that's exactly what the resurrection is. It is the first fruit that Jesus is the first one who's burst forth from the grave. He's the first one to breathe life into this tired world. And it gives us a powerful hope. Hope in God's forgiveness that he wants a relationship with us. That God isn't angry at you. That God wants you. And he wants a relationship with you. It gives us a powerful hope of life over death. That death doesn't have the final word. It gives us a powerful hope that all the wrongs of the world will be made right. See, the reality is as Christians, we're not optimists, but we're not also pessimists. We're realists. We see with crystal clarity the brokenness of the world around us, but we see through the lens of hope through the lens of the resurrection, that God has given us the first fruits, that there is tangible evidence of the restoration that he's going to bring to everything and to everyone who turns to him. But is that all that the resurrection does, is just give us a powerful sense of hope? No, it also gives us a hope-filled power and I never really understood this, never really thought about the implications of this until I was preparing for this sermon. But Paul writes in Romans 8.11, don't miss this. You could probably spend the rest of your life dwelling on this and living into this. 
He says, the same spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. In Christ, we have access to the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that caused that tomb not to be empty, that caused death to be overturned. You have access to that same power. We have a hope-filled power, the Holy Spirit, power to fight the sin and the selfishness that so often destroys our life, power to keep fighting in our marriage, even when things are tough, power to keep loving our kids, even when they're not loving us back, power to keep working within the brokenness of our workplaces, power to keep working in society. We are given a power, the very power that rose Jesus from the dead. About 15 minutes later in Spring Park, um, we walk back by that guy and this car pulls up to the man who was laying on the side and this lady, middle-aged lady, walks out of her car with a bag of McDonald's and kneels down and gives it to the man and begins to talk with him. And that was convicting for me. It made me realize that I too need the power of God, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead, I need that to restore my vision, not to lose hope, that every act, everything that we do is part of God's work as he is redeeming the world. He has risen to restore our vision. So the question is, how do I get access to that power? It's one thing to vaguely know it's out there, but how do I get access to it? And in our passage, right after he says, he is risen, he's not here, see the place where they laid him, he says, but go. He gives them something to do. He says, but go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And there, Mary, Mary, and Salome, you will see him just as he told you. How do we get access to that power? Well, we have to respond to the good news. It's not just enough to hear it or even maybe to intellectually believe it, but we have to put that good news into practice. We need to go and meet Jesus in wherever our Galilee is. And so they did. In, in chapter 28, Verse 16, it says, The eleven disciples did go to Galilee. They responded to the mountain that Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority and on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. They did three things. They gathered together. They got together with one another. They worshiped God, and then they listened to him. And those are the same three things that when we do them, in my experience, when I do them, hope is breathed into me. My vision is restored. I have a power to keep fighting for what Jesus died for and rose again 2,000 years ago. 
So if you've gotten out of the habit of meeting with other Christians, or you're going through something tough, this week, set up a time to, to find somebody that you know that's a Christian, that you can talk with and process what you're going through. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, I don't know if I buy it. I don't even know if Jesus actually rose from the dead. Well, find somebody that you think they're an authentic Christian. They're a thoughtful Christian. Sit down with them and talk to them. Because when we gather together, we see the risen Christ. The second thing is they worshiped. And I love what the passage says. They worshiped, but some doubted. The reality is, oftentimes we think in order to come to church, we have to have all of our thoughts in order. We have to have all of our life in order. But that's not the case. It wasn't the case for the disciples. It's not the case for us. It's when we worship, show up on Sunday morning with God's people, then hope is breathed into us. I remember singing that song that we sang when my wife and I had lost someone who, were, who was close to us. And I remember singing those words, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen from the dead, trampling death by death. It's when we worship that life and hope is breathed into our life. And tears are running down my eyes. I didn't want to come to worship that morning. But when I did, I saw the risen Christ. And the last thing is listen to him. They listened to his words. And it's when we read these words that we get a vision of hope. We gather, we worship, and we listen. And we see the risen Christ. I want to read to you how the story ends. Because those three things are what we're going to be doing for eternity for those in Christ. At the very end of Revelation, I want you to see this picture. If you're the kind of person that likes to close your eyes, you're welcome to close your eyes. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the risen Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, the same tree that the first fruits that broke forth 2,000 years ago, that tree with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the tree was full of fruit. And what was that fruit doing? It says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is God's picture of what the end of time is going to be like. That all the brokenness, all the lostness, all the pain will be healed. That's the picture of the tree that God broke forth 2,000 years ago. And he's inviting us into that work. And then it says, There will no longer be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And as we worship him, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And then we'll take off those glasses of hope. Because we won't need them anymore. Why? Because we'll see him. It says they will see his face. We will see God's face. That, my friends, is what the resurrection does. He has risen to restore our vision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. 
Lord, we thank you for the first fruits of the resurrection. And we thank you for inviting us into that restorative work. Lord, I pray for each person in this room, in those places where they've lost hope. Lord, I pray that you would breathe the hope of the resurrection into them. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into us to fill us with the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. For he is risen. Amen.